Yeah, just um, grab your seat and then we are ready to go. And um, so let me introduce the speaker, Tessa Alexanian, to you. Tessa Alexanian studied at the University of Waterloo. She co-founded the East Bay Biosecurity Group and instigated the Catalyst Collaborative Biosecurity Summit. Tessa is now a safety and security program officer with the IGEM Foundation. At IGEM, her work focuses on creating incentives and programs that encourage synthetic biology to develop in ways that are responsible, responsive, safe, and secure. After the talk, we have a Q&A, so just open your swap card app and just click on the event. A live discussion is called, and then on, under, under, the, uh, under question, you can just um, add your questions and upload, and I will later um, yeah, mention these questions in the Q&A. And now we have Tessa Alexanian with a talk titled Biosecurity, a Governance Perspective. Thanks so much. So as Evanda mentioned, you know, my, my perspective on biosecurity, at least in the work I do right now, is very much on the incentives and culture and norm side of things, which I would say is a governance perspective. Uh, but I did want to spend a bit of time talking about why I think it's useful to give a governance perspective on biosecurity. I think often when you think about the failures we've had in the past in, in biosecurity, they're not really failures of technology. They're failures in all of the human systems that surround our technology failures of regulation, failures of culture, of norms. And, and so I think that governance is a very important safeguard on uh, biotechnology going well. Let's talk about a few examples of biosecurity failures. One that I hope you're all pretty familiar with since this is from this year. Uh, this map is uh, January 1st, 2022. And so you can see that in some parts of the world, uh, you had 20-year-olds getting a second dose of coronavirus vaccine. Um, and in some other parts of the world, healthcare workers were still unvaccinated. So if you were imagining a world that was really good at handling pandemics and, you know, was trying to minimize spread and minimize death and minimize new emergence of new variants, the map would not look like this. So I, I think we can point to this as an example of a failure of whether you want to place the failure more squarely in the space of regulation or cooperation is up to you, but I, I think we can call it a failure of governance. Another failure uh, that I wanted to talk about is a failure of operational practices. And this one I wanted to talk about because when you think about governance, you might naturally focus a little bit more on pandemic response, which is what the past example is from. But I think the places where governance can have the highest impact is actually in pandemic prevention and preventing uh, outbreaks from happening. So this is an example where a failure of governance caused an outbreak to happen. It was in 1979. It's the deadliest human outbreak of inhalation anthrax ever. Uh, 66 people died in Russia. And the reason it happened is because the day crew at this uh, covert bioweapons plant had removed one of the air filters from one of their spray dryers for anthrax spores. And they didn't properly communicate this to the night crew. So the night crew turned on the spray dryer, you know, there were, two, there were two layers of filters, but the second one broke under the pressure of, you know, not having the first filter in place. And then spores were spread uh, all, to, all across the neighboring towns and villages, and unfortunately, 66 people died. So this seems like an example of just pretty silly operational failures that could have maybe been prevented by, by better operational practices. And this is the sort of thing that I just expect to happen in the future as well. 
I wanted to talk about a, a slightly broader kind of failure as well. You know, the fact that bioweapons were being made in a covert Russian lab. Uh, to me, that is a failure of governance as well. It's a failure of culture and norms that would prevent scientists from working on this. And I really think, you know, if, if you are yourself a biomedical scientist, it's important to grapple with the history of your field. Uh, I wanted to give an example from my country in the 1940s and 1950s. Some scientists who were likely well-intentioned, likely thought of themselves as doing important work, finding out what vitamins mattered for malnutrition, um, experimented on Aboriginal children at Canadian residential schools, uh, which included denying them adequate food in order to study the progress of malnutrition, which, you know, not that far in the future, this looks like totally morally bankrupt to me. And so I think we should expect that there's a need for kind of reflection and checking in on culture and norms in the future of biotechnology and biomedical science as well. All right, that's a little bit on what failures can look like. Let's talk about what successful governance can look like as well. I wanted to give the example of airline safety because all around the world, and maybe especially in the US, flights have simply got much, much safer in the past 25 years. If I'm remembering the statistic right, in 1996 in the US, there was one fatality for every uh, 2 million departures, and now it's one fatality for every 120 million departures. So that's a 98% reduction. And some of that is coming from technology, from more reliable jet engines and better cockpit automation. But from what I've read, at least, the, the big part of that improvement in airline safety is actually more on the governance side. It's building up this culture of no punishment, no fault incident reporting, building up this culture of studying every little uh, mistake that happens, gathering uh, flight tracking data, cockpit data, data from air traffic controllers, and really digging into the causes of what causes crashes. And so the things that have worked that are not technology things are, are often, again, quite silly looking. They're things like if you're a pilot pointing to the, uh, to the screen that you're reading and reading out the number and having your co-pilot confirm that that is the right number verbally, which like pointing and saying things feels pretty low tech, but it really has improved safety. And, and there's a lot of interventions like this. An example from bioscience that I wanted to give that's, again, more on that norms and culture side because I care about that stuff a lot. Uh, in 1970, we had the first ever recombinant DNA experiments, so putting DNA from two different organisms together. These were happening in Paul Berg's lab in Stanford. And one of his grad students, Janet Metz, went to Cold Spring Harbor in 1972. And was just kind of, I think she was just deep in chewing on technical problems. She was like, yeah, we're trying to use this SV40 viral vector and work on these E. coli plasmids. And a bunch of the other uh, grad students there went, wait a minute, what? This this is insane mad science. Are you sure that this isn't going to create something really dangerous? And one of those grad students actually went back and called their PI and said, you have to talk to Paul Berg and get him to not work with this stuff. And indeed, the PI called Paul Berg and was like, hey, the very first time you do this kind of recombinant DNA experiment, can you not use a viral vector that also infects human cells? Like, could, could you pick some, any, any other vector? And, and to his credit, Paul Berg did. And then he also kind of started this series of meetings that led to some self-regulation among scientists working with recombinant DNA, which are known as the Isilomar conferences. So I think that's an example of where this kind of peer intervention uh, can be quite powerful. So a few examples of success. Hope that gives you a sense of why we would do a governance perspective on biosecurity. There's both examples of pretty significant failures, I would say, and there are also successful examples that give us hope that we might be able to make a difference with governance interventions. The next things I will talk about here are some assumptions that are guiding my prioritization, just to give you a grounding in why I talk about the things I do. This model of biosecurity that sorts your possible interventions into their focus on prevention, detection, or response. 
a whole long list of governance projects, hopefully some of which get you how about excited, at least interested in the space. And then if you do get interested in the space, a bit of a discussion about who should get involved and, and how you might get involved. So some we're going to speed run these, but some super quick assumptions of mine are that pandemics are really bad. Hopefully after the past few years, I don't really have to defend that. Uh, COVID has been really miserable for me, even a person who had a relatively easy time of it. Unfortunately, I also think pandemics could be much worse. So just using the examples from coronaviruses, we know there are coronaviruses like SARS-1 and MERS that have a much higher fatality rate. I think pandemics could be much worse. And I also think pandemic risk can be reduced through this prevention detection response system that we'll talk about later. Your assumptions going into this might differ. So folks with a long-termist focus, and I would count myself among them, tend to focus on maybe rarer pandemic events that could be extremely, extremely bad, sort of threatening to civilization. If you have more of a well-being focus, I think there's a lot of very tractable, important interventions that are more in the world of scalable pandemic prevention, uh, but less focused on those less likely but extreme events. If you're coming from a perspective thinking that transformative AI is coming soon, I don't know what this implies for biosecurity, to be honest. I feel confused about this myself. Maybe you focus on cyber biosecurity. Happy to talk about this afterwards if you have clever thoughts on this. But all this to say, I'm coming in the, into this with my assumptions of how pandemics might be bad. You might come in with your own assumptions, but I think there are relevant governance interventions no matter what. So where do we locate those relevant governance interventions? Well, one model of biosecurity is that you can intervene at different times in preventing a really bad biological catastrophe. Uh, you can intervene at the prevention time, so this is simply pandemic pathogens are not released. The outbreak never happens. Then detection is, okay, the outbreak is happening, but it's not really bad yet, and we, we know about that, ideally, quickly. We want to know about that quickly, want to know about that pretty much as early as possible so that we can respond and contain the outbreaks. And so I would say that governance really shines in this prevention aspect. I think that's where there are maybe fewer viable technology interventions, but a lot of possible governance interventions. And just to dig a little more into the model there, I think you can think about governance interventions in terms of constraining the capabilities of people to build or release a, um, a dangerous pathogen. So this would be maybe preventing the development of technologies that could be easily misused or limiting the access to those technologies. And then I think you can also do it more on the shaping intent and motivation side. So this is convincing people that they wouldn't want to release a dangerous pathogen because they would get caught and get into trouble, just kind of that attribution part, or just there's no point because our detection and response systems are so good that, that there would be no need to. Talking about those detection and response systems, again, I, I think this is kind of where technology shines, and there is a technology perspective on biosecurity happening later today, so check that out if you're interested in these. But I do think governance can kind of accelerate or put the brakes on the successful deployment of technology. So I, I think my example of COVID-19 vaccine deployment earlier in this talk ho hopefully makes that point. All right, I've said a lot of things. We're gonna take a little brainstorm break. So what I would say is, looking back at this model of prevention and detection and response, I'm hoping you can turn to your neighbor and if you don't have any neighbors, I guess, either think by yourself or get up from your seat and go find a friend. Um, and talk to your neighbor about what you think a possible governance intervention might be in that area, a possible non-technology intervention. And we'll just take three minutes for this. All right. Thank you for doing this brainstorm break with each other. 
Uh, if you generated any questions during your talk with each other, a reminder that you can put those questions into SwapCard if you would like, and there will be a Q&A after this. All right, so let's talk about possible governance projects. I am not going to give an exhaustive list of all of the incredible organizations and projects in this space because it really kind of spans everywhere from academic projects to the World Health Organization. So I will do my best to give you a flavor for what kinds of things can be done in this space and, again, a flavor of how you might contribute. But if you get to the end of this and really want to know about a specific project or want to drill down into more details, either ask a question in SwapCard or come talk to me afterwards. All right, so let's talk about a few projects in prevention. Um, and specifically in that kind of steering the development of technology aspect of prevention. So one of those that is near and dear to my heart because I do a lot of risk assessment in my job is trying to establish consensus on the risks from advanced biotechnology. So uh, this is an example of a WHO report that was done in collaboration with some folks from the Center for the Study of Existential Risk at Cambridge. They did some horizon scanning, tried to identify dual-use concerns with emerging biotechnology. Seems really great. One of the things they identified is that there is not a lot of consensus about what is most concerning or even what is the right scope of concern about dual use. This is unfortunate to me because I would love to tell all of the young synthetic biologists I work with, here's all the categories of things you need to worry about or not worry about, or here's the right way to assess this risk. And this consensus doesn't really exist. So I identify this as a project that lots of people are working on, but that needs more attention. Another project I wanted to highlight in this kind of steering development of technology space is one that is more by steering the incentives of scientists. So if you follow bioweapons news at all, which maybe you do, uh, the Cooperative Threat Reduction Program has been in the news a lot lately because some of the labs funded by the US Department of Defense in Ukraine have been the center of some uh, Russian allegations uh, that they are producing bioweapons illegally in violation of the Biological Weapons Convention. One aspect of this program the program that did indeed fund labs in Ukraine, although, in my opinion, not to create bioweapons. Uh, one really interesting aspect of this program to me is that they were trying to change the incentives for scientists who had been working on nuclear weapons, chemical weapons, and bioweapons programs in the former Soviet Union and get them to work on other things by funding medical research and nuclear power research in, in former Soviet states. So I think there's, I don't know, there's something really interesting about international cooperation, specifically on can we get scientists to not build bioweapons there. Other prevention projects. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about potential liability incentives for uh, not releasing dangerous pathogens, not working with dangerous pathogens. Uh, I've heard proposals around catastrophe insurance or maybe requiring people to have certain safety or security measures in place in their labs to get insured. I've also heard people exploring you know, can you do some kind of lawsuit against a lab that has a lab accident? Put a question mark here, because I, I don't feel like I can point to a project and say, yes, this one's done. But I, I think a lot of people are working on this, and it's, it seems like an exciting space, again, in, in prevention. Access controls, I can point to a lot of very real access controls that are in place. Uh, an example that I, I put a picture up here is the International Gene Synthesis Consortium, which is a group for voluntary self-regulation of gene synthesis, and so they require that members of the consortium both uh, check the DNA sequences that are being ordered and kind of flag ones from concerning viruses. 
Um, and they also screen the customers who are trying to get access and make sure that they are affiliated with a well-known institution doing relevant research or follow up with them and get more information. And there's similar customer screening in place for cultural repositories, for example. All right, then less on the uh, constraining capabilities side, more on the shaping intent side. Uh, it would be cool if there were kind of proactive investigations under the Biological Weapons Convention. In practice, right now, the BWC receives these voluntary confidence-building measures from states, parties, which is almost every state on the planet, um, that says, hey, we have a biodefense program. Now you know about it. Or we have a BSL-4 lab. Uh, but it doesn't do any monitoring or investigation itself of potential bioweapons facilities. And th this is something that many states' parties have talked about wanting uh, to have in the BWC, because this is something that other non-proliferation treaties like the Chemical Weapons Convention have, where they will actually go out and investigate chemical labs and check if they're making chemical weapons. There's, there's nothing like that in bioweapons right now. And then I think the other thing you can do is this deterrence by denial, just make it not worth it to build bioweapons because your detection and response are so on point. Uh, and you might do that by encouraging technology investment, for example. Talking about detection and response, one thing that I would love kind of building off that air safety, um, airline safety example would be more empirical biosecurity, lab safety incident reporting, infrastructure to support whistleblowing, you know, what sometimes gets called a governance sandbox, so a chance to experiment with different governance interventions and find out if they work. This is one reason that I think iGEM is kind of interesting is because it's a science competition, and so you can make arbitrary rules, uh, apply them for the year that the competition lasts, and then change them the next year, which isn't something you can do in, you know, a university lab, for example. There's also some work on mapping capabilities, so tracking high containment labs through publications, the reports that are submitted to the BWC and the WHO, I think this is valuable even from a, a more long-termist bias because it tells you which outbreaks you might be more concerned about because they're happening near uh, high containment labs. And I, my hope is it also creates a future possibility of us being able to potentially detect covert uh, weapons labs as well because we have a baseline of what those labs look like. So those are a couple of governance E projects under detection, a few governance E projects under response. Um, one, I already sort of discussed this paying for platform technology uh, CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Interventions, is a big player in this space. So kind of trying to fund just-in-case platform vaccines before outbreaks happen so you can accelerate your response timelines. Um, speaking of accelerating response timelines, there's been a lot of discussion about how to get regulators to move faster in the case of a public health emergency. So whether this is authorizing challenge trials that you wouldn't normally authorize or really like speeding up uh, emergency use regulations for uh, antivirals or vaccines in the case of a public health emergency. I think that kind of like legal advocacy work is super important. Okay. That was a lot of governance projects. I'm just gonna leave this slide up for a moment. Here's the list, enjoy. There's tons more that I didn't talk about. Um, you know, I, bar I barely got into culture building stuff even though that's kind of my job. So there's, there's a lot more we could talk about as well. Coming up next, did any of these projects spark your interest? Who should get involved in this space, and how would one get involved? One reason that I think it would be great for more effective altruist types to get involved in biosecurity governance is that I think, you know, despite all of those differing assumptions that I mentioned earlier, the effective altruism community tends to bring a pretty useful lens, which I sometimes call scope-sensitive biosecurity. So I, I included a picture of lab coats here, not to 
paid on biosafety education, which is important, but because you know a friend of mine who did a degree in vi virology was telling me that she heard more during her undergrad and graduate work about the risks of hanging lab coats on the backs of chairs, because you might trip on them, then she heard about the potential dual use risks of different kinds of virology work. And to me, this is just very scope insensitive, right? It, it's not that it's not bad for someone to trip on a lab coat and maybe, you know, hurt their wrist as they break their fall, but it's definitely much worse to enable viral engineering that creates a terrible engineered pandemic, right? And so I think this kind of scope sensitivity lens is something that I've heard from people outside the effective altruism community that they kind of appreciate about the EA community. So maybe you're convinced that this is neglected. Maybe you're convinced that uh, you know, the scope-sensitive perspective is important. Should you work on governance? Well, the reasons why, again, I do think it's really important and neglected. I think also if you have strong non-STEM skills, whether those are communications, economics, law, this is a good place to use them. The reasons why you might not want to work on governance. These systems have slow feedback loops with hard to measure outputs. So I talked a bit about the Biological Weapons Convention and strengthening it. If we wanted to strengthen it, the unreal best case for it getting much stronger would be for that to happen within five years. And you know, a 10 year timeline is more realistic and not that realistic, right? And so you're, you're dealing with really super slow feedback loops, you're also often working on prevention, which means you have hard to measure outputs, it's hard to know if you successfully prevented something or if it just wouldn't have happened anyway. And it's all kind of squishy human systems, and so you maybe have to do a little bit more, I don't know, diplomacy and dealing with messed up incentives and that sort of thing than you do if you are just trying to build a useful piece of technology. Something where, I don't know if it's really a reason why or why not, your mileage may vary, is there's a lot of coordination with people outside the effective altruism community working on biosecurity governance. To me, this is a good thing. I feel like I learn a lot of people, I pick up new, a lot from people, I pick up a lot of new perspectives. But I, I, I think it's fair to say your mileage may vary on this. All right, we're gonna take another brainstorm break. So I listed a bunch of projects, so many projects, um, and I listed some reasons why or why not you might wanna work on governance. Let's pause and talk to your neighbor about, like, does this kind of work seem like a fit for you? And we'll take another three minutes. Questions during the break, you can pop them in swap card. All right, maybe, maybe you're like, oh yeah, I could, I could be interested in this. I could be interested in working on governance. Where can you do that? Uh, I will just give a couple of examples. If you would like specific places, come talk to me afterwards. So public health agencies, you know, that for example, those emergency use regulations that we just talked about, those are gonna be implemented by probably public health agencies. Similarly, incident reporting stuff, you know, what we see with airline safety, that's being done by the FAA in the US. So I do think work at public health agencies will probably involve a lot of slow systems, frustratingly slow systems, but also could be potentially high impact if you're able to shift things. International organizations, getting a stronger BWC is an obvious example. Also, the WHO, in various ways, leads global public health responses and, and you know, global laboratory biosafety and biosecurity. So I, I do think, again, if you, can, if you can shift that very large organization, get them to do you know, scope-sensitive stuff, I think that's really great. And it's not to suggest that people aren't already doing that. You can also be embedded in industry. I think this is where some of that access to technology stuff is going to be done. So you could go work at a DNA synthesis company or a synthetic biology company and kind of encourage them to implement appropriate access controls. And, and in fact, many of these companies have dedicated biosecurity teams. 
advocacy groups. There's a number of EA groups doing advocacy. I, the ones I pulled out here were One Day Sooner and the Pandemic Prevention Network and Guarding Against Pandemics, but that's that's just a short list. I think there's, you know, if you don't want to embed yourself in the edifice of government, but you want to convince government to do stuff, you can maybe go join an advocacy group. Uh, similarly, think, think tanks and research institutes, I think, have some of this power. I have highlighted a couple of U.S. think tanks and research institutes that do biosecurity governance, uh, the Nuclear Threat Initiative, the Center for Health Security at Johns Hopkins, the Council on Strategic Risks. Uh, there's also a lot of European think tanks and research institutes, well, and UK, which is no longer Europe, but uh, CEPI, the, who I mentioned earlier, uh, they're headquartered in Oslo. Um, CIPRI is the Stockholm Institute for Peace Research, I think. Um, and then there's the Future of Humanity Institute and the Center for the Study of Existential Risk in the UK. I just wanted to highlight this also isn't only happening in the West. Um, the Chenjin Center for Biosafety Research and Strategy is setting a lot of this stuff for China. So I, I do think also you can be embedded in an academic institute and then end up having a big influence on policy and regulation. How can you get involved if, if you think you might want to end up being, working in one of these spaces? I think like learning and networking are probably the two top bits, and I'll talk about those more on the next slide. Uh, the other little bits of advice I would give is maybe don't take unilateral action. I do think that biosecurity is a space where there is a lot of risk of being a well-intentioned person and doing harm, which is why I put the picture back up of the unethical biomedical experimentation. I think you can, I think there are not only ethical hazards, but very real kind of information capability hazards here. Um, so, you know, if you're, if you're doing stuff, don't take your little unilateral action, get, get feedback from people. I also think it's important to be nice and it's important to collaborate well outside the effective altruism community because, again, governance is ultimately these huge human systems, they're going to involve a lot of humans who are not in this community, and you should be nice to them and collaborate with them. All right, so under learning and networking, which I said I would talk about more, um, you can run fit tests and kind of build up your skills. So there's a number of fellowships you could try, the kind of uh, triumvirate of uh, Sari, Cherry, and Kerry. Um, you can intern at places like NTI or the BWC Implementation Support Unit. One thing I would really recommend trying out, uh, it should start running early next year, is that NTI and um, the Next Generation for Global Health Security uh, initiative, they run this Next Generation for Biosecurity competition. I would strongly encourage you to enter it. It's sort of a policy essay writing contest that happens once a year. For networking, I would really encourage you, especially if you're a more junior person, to look for mentorship. Uh, the EA Forum has just launched this test where you can chat with a biosecurity professional there's this program called Magnify Mentoring, which I believe focuses on underrepresented groups within EA, but I think they have a pretty broad mandate. It's obviously networking at EAGs. You're all here, so you kind of got that one checked. Um, and I also want to say mentors from outside of the effective altruism community are also super important. A lot of my greatest mentors are, are not in this community. This was a governance perspective on biosecurity. I guess I just want to finish off by saying, like, I would really like us to succeed. I think the futures in which we fail to prevent terrible pandemics are often futures where we have failed at biosecurity governance. And I don't really feel like we're succeeding right now. I sort of listed all of these projects. There's a lot of them that I'm really excited about. But I feel like in my adequate world, we would have a really strong BWC, and we would have consensus on dual-use risks, and we would have amazing emergency use regulations for pandemics. And we, we don't have those things right now. So really, I would like us to succeed. I don't feel like we're exactly succeeding right now. Um, 
And I, I would really like us to get to the beautiful solar punk future where we have amazing biotechnology and we're living nice lives. And I think biosecurity governance is an important part of that story. So if you're motivated to work on it, come talk to me. Thanks. We're now gonna do a quick q and I'm just gonna go grab some chairs while Evander comes back on stage. If you have a question but haven't put it into swap card yet, now is your chance. Yeah, and you can also uh, copy it to the questions part. Uh, I saw there are some in the chat. Um, yeah, you can uh, only the questions. Um, you can only about the questions. Like we can answer questions under the solar punk slide. Probably works. Okay, um, let's start with the first question. Um, can you say a few more words about promising work on cultural change? Yeah. Um, so one thing, I mentioned that Chanjin Center for Biosafety Strategy in China, uh, they have recently released this um, Chanjin guidelines in collaboration with John Hop Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security on global codes of conduct for life scientists which is kind of meant to help different countries and institutions implement their own code of conduct. Uh, I feel maybe I'm like over optimistic about this because I, I did my engineering degree in Canada where we have a pretty weird ritual around engineering ethics where we, we get this iron ring and we take this oath and sort of promise to be ethical engineers. And it's this really, I don't know, serious, extremely cultural thing, which came about because there were a number of high profile engineering disasters in Canada where bridges collapsed and, in addition to implementing more professionalization and saying you can't call yourself an engineer until you've passed these tests and have the certification, they also did this, this weird cultural thing that I, I don't know, I think is quite powerful. So this is my engineering ring and you're supposed to wear it on the hand that signs a piece of papers that you like hear the ring scratching um, and are reminded of this oath that you took before you like sign off on your civil engineering plans or whatever. Not an engineer anymore, so it's maybe less relevant to me. But it maybe it maybe gave me a bit of hope for some of this like student level cultural intervention. And and I think one of in my mind the only things that the the BWC meeting that's coming up in November December that they're likely to agree on is to try to adopt these change in guidelines more broadly. So for that's more countries. Yeah, and more countries. Yeah, yeah. So I think I think there's this idea of incorporating some of this cultural and ethical, um, you know history and narrative and responsibility earlier in, in bioeducation. And I think that's a good idea. Okay, great. Um, let's move to the next question. Um, what would be a rational amount of money, um, money um, invested for um, uh, money be for humanity to give to the biological weapons convention? So what would be a good, good amount of a uh, good amount? And yeah, so they are currently underfunded. Um, so one, one big constraint on this, and uh, there's a bunch of people in this community who have interned at the BWCISU who probably know more details on this than me, but I think it's, it's often quite important for these conventions to remain, if not independent, sort of democratic and be kind of almost exclusively or exclusively funded through contributions from the member states. And this is kind of uh, an important aspect of how they work. I think part of the idea is that it should only be the state's determining what uh, 
what happens, and they're all sort of expected to contribute in proportion to their GDP. I say all this just to say that I think if we want to invest in strengthening the BWC, it, it won't happen by funding the BWC itself, because there's quite a lot of restrictions on this. I think one thing that has happened is that the there's been extra funding for internship and research help at various UN uh, agencies, including the United Nations Office for Disarmament Affairs. So there's there's ways to fund parts of the UN and contribute to strengthening the BWC, but it's quite hard to directly fund the BWC. This was not an empirical answer to your question, but more a why doesn't it have more money answer. Um, and I think I think to give you an actual answer of what would be the rational amount of money to spend on it, I'd have to think more about the relative value of strengthening the BWC versus strengthening other aspects of prevention, detection, response. And, and do you do you know the uh, number maybe um, of the funding of the official UN funding of the BWC? I think it, in the precipice we have the number 1.5, 1.4 million, or so, uh, ridiculously low. Um, do you have? I don't have it off the top of my head. One thing I will say is that there was an effort from, I think, led by the European Commission to establish a working capital fund for the BWC, which has mildly stabilized their financial situation since 2019. Um, so prior to this, I was very shocked when I learned this. The way it sort of worked is that you would get these annual contributions from states, and then if you didn't spend them, you were supposed to return them. And then the states kind of had until April To, to pay you. So in the, there was this awkward period for the ISU between January and April where they wouldn't always know if they could hire people and they couldn't necessarily offer people even like year-long contracts to work at the ISU. And so there was an effort to establish this kind of working capital fund, which essentially was some, some countries pitched into this fund and said, well, you can draw from this and then pay back into it when you get your, your contributions. So they now have their employees hired for longer contracts, which seems more sane. Uh, but I, I'm afraid I don't know the ex exact number off the top of my head. Okay, all right. So um, switch to the next question. So you talked um, earlier in the start about airline safety. Um, what are non-punishing incidents reporting examples from airline safety? Do you have some in mind? Um, so I, I recently read this article called The Airline Safety Revolution in the Wall Street Journal. So if you want to just like read a bunch about this, it's from someone who's in the middle of writing a book on it. Um, and it was quite good. So examples include do include plane crashes, right? It's not that there's been zero plane crashes um, in the U.S. since since this policy was introduced. It's sort of been gradually decreasing. Um, and so what you would do is you would interview everyone who was in the cockpit at the time and kind of find out what happened. And, and this is how they started identifying those patterns of, oh, people are like miscalibrating the altitude adjustments on their computer And so then you can address that by, you know, improving your cockpit automation, but also by let's let's point at the um, at the computer and make sure we have entered the right information. Um, so I th I think I guess what I would say is it's I don't have super specific high profile examples. It's more like a interview everyone involved in the situation and okay. you know they can't get fired for saying what they did, which. I think it's an interesting consideration as well. I think that's raised criticism from some people. Of like, oh, this is just a get-out-of-jail-free card for like pilots who are really bad at their jobs. But my guess is it's cost-benefited. Finding out exactly what drives all of these accidents is cost-benefited for, you know, even if that cost is uh, having a few pilots stay on in their jobs who you would maybe prefer not to be flying planes. And following up on that, what would uh, what are the mechanisms for incentivizing the reporting? Maybe could we could we Could biosecurity learn um, about, this uh, about these mechanisms, maybe? Yeah, so I guess one 
thing that is true in airline safety and not as true in biosecurity is that there are strong economic incentives to not mess up. So, you know, after high-profile plane crashes, especially as, as plane crashes became less frequent, the economic impact of a single plane crash on a particular airline carrier became much higher. So, you know, if you are, I don't know, Delta Airlines and you have a plane crash, you're looking at losing billions of dollars because people will choose not to fly with you because now the events have become so much rarer. And so I think we don't really have the same conditions in biosecurity where, for example, the the funding structures for labs are not dependent on their biosecurity practices or aren't dependent on having a certain record of not having laboratory accidents. So there, there are, for example, speak to Canada, if you work in a high containment lab in Canada and you have an accident, there are requirements for reporting that incident. Uh, but my understanding is they're not like well collated into a soup, an easy to navigate shared database where we can identify the root causes of them. Uh, and again, there's not really that set of economic incentives to force that, which, which I think is why people get excited about some of this liability insurance or like, you know, again, potentially like holding these labs liable for, for damages is that it might be a way to create some of those economic incentives. Okay, great. Um, so let's move to the next question. What is more neglected, work on governance or technology? I, I feel like I have such a boring answer to this, which is that, you know, you have to drill down into more specific than those areas to answer that question. So, I mean, I don't know. My bias is that work on the extremely squishy parts of prevention are especially neglected, but maybe that's just because that's what I currently work on and I want easier tools. Uh, I think that for a given scope-sensitive project, you could probably make the case that you are like addressing something that is more neglected than like 90% of projects in you know technology to address biosecurity or governance to address biosecurity. But whether the whole broad area is more or less neglected is, is harder for me to say. I, I guess I feel like there's maybe been a bit of a vibe shift in the effective altruism community specifically around this, where in 2017, 2018, when I was first getting interested in biosecurity, I kind of was like, oh, I guess I have to learn about politics more because governance is the only thing you can do. Grumble, grumble, this sounds boring. And that's you mentioned that I started this EA bio, Eastway Biosecurity Meetup, and that was because I had to read all these papers about politics, and I wasn't sure that I would unless I had social uh, disapproval that would come come at me if I didn't read those papers. And whereas now I feel like there's this sense that, oh, there's all these hu this huge number of concrete biosecurity technology opportunities that you could work on. And again, check out the te technical perspective on biosecurity later today for a list of those and, and an intro to those. So I, I guess I would say that maybe there's been a bit of a vibe shift now that people don't feel like they have to do governance. Um, in order to contribute meaningfully to biosecurity, but I still think governance is important. So maybe I will like push back slightly on the vibe of like everything fun is in technology now. Uh, there's fun stuff to do in governance too. Yeah, um, following up a little bit um, on that, can you talk a little bit more about options to contribute um, to biosecurity governance for bio-researchers in academia? Yeah, so if you are a technical biology researcher, I guess the... The places I see you being able to contribute to biosecurity governance are a fewfold. One is that you could get involved in science diplomacy. A lot of scientists who go and get involved in 
and and consult as technical experts to the WHO or to the Biological Weapons Convention. You know, that's that's not their full time job. Their full time job is being a professor or something. Uh, so so I think you could you could go and provide your expertise. I remember being really shocked the the first time I went to the Biological Weapons Convention. Um, I you know had pretty recently been a student and went and was kind of surprised that all of the diplomats were like asking me what I thought about CRISPR. Um, because they didn't know that much about it, because it's it's not their full time job to follow science, and and so I think you can you can go and provide quite a lot of useful expertise if you make yourself available to some of the people making these regulatory decisions, and and I think that can be uh, can be quite powerful and can be kind of within the scope of a, a volunteer side job that you do, and I think there's all these kind of regulatory committees that you can go try to sit on and influence. Um, other things for life scientists. I guess also like thinking about the incident reporting culture, operating practices, dual use risk assessment culture at your own institution as well. I, I certainly have seen cases where one person who is really a stickler about lab safety made the entire lab that they were in a lot safer. Again, whether you, whether safety at your particular lab is that much of a concern for, uh, you know, uh, pandemic prevention depends a lot on what you work on. Uh, but I, I think it might be, you know, if you're looking for sort of a small scale experiment to run, I think, can I influence the culture of my lab it might be kind of interesting. Okay. Yeah. So, um, l the last question for the session would be, um, what are promising approaches to develop verification capabilities of the BWC? What are bottlenecks? Yeah, there, I would totally recommend, if you're interested in this issue, checking out this report that uh, Unidir, the UN Office of Disarmament Research, I don't know what the I is, um, put out uh, recently called Back to the Future for Verification, I think. If you enter those terms into Google, you will find the report. Um, and, and they were writing about how, you know, the technology landscape has changed a lot since the question of verification was last addressed, at least in technical detail. Um, my, my boss, Piers Millet, uh, he always, he worked on that original uh, technical investigation and he always likes to joke that, you know, they wrote their report on a typewriter and that was the last time that, you know, there was a big sustained investigation into verification. So I think there's a lot of promising things that have changed since then, you know, pretty points to how uh, synthesis and, and se sequencing have gotten much cheaper, but I, I think this starts to create the possibility of doing passive monitoring of high containment labs, for example, which just wouldn't wouldn't have been very realistic in 1996, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so I think there's a lot of exciting technical options. I think we might start to see some like multilateral or bilateral agreements where countries are sort of voluntarily investigating each other's labs to test this kind of thing out. That said, a lot of this stuff seems like it's still in that kind of not quite ready for a policymaker to adopt it because it's a not quite tested enough space. And so... I guess if you're also a technical person, I would say one thing you could work on in the space of prevention is testing whether these, whether possible investigative mechanisms, whether that's using remote sensing or using, again, kind of passive monitoring of air vents or, or things like that, whether, whether these actually work. Because if you could hand over a report to the hoped for technical commission that is looking at verification um, at the BWC and say, yes, this is, this is how you would design the system to actually work. That would be really helpful. And I think that doesn't quite exist right now. So there's been great technical progress. There's a possibility of having these kind of adoption-ready measures that would assist with investigations, both sort of ongoing monitoring and like 
post-accusation um, investigations of, of bio, bio labs, but it's not quite stitched together yet. Um, so, so yeah, one bottleneck, the proposals aren't quite concrete enough, and then the other bottleneck is just that there's immense disagreement about what the purpose of verification is and what we should hope for from a, a verification mechanism at the, that is part of the Biological Weapons Convention. So some people want to just go back to the contentious document that was, might be an exaggeration to say, close to being passed in, in 2001, but you know that had been heavily negotiated in 2001, and some people say, oh, we need to tear this up, and some people say, unlike with chemical weapons, true verification where you have a yes or no, this is definitely a bioweapon facility or definitely not, is just impossible with, with uh, the biosciences because so much stuff can be used for dual purposes. And so some people say you can't even use the word verification. You have to say, you know, assurance of compliance or something. So uh, lots of bottlenecks as well. That was a disorganized answer, but I hope you learned something. Yeah, for sure. So um, thank you for all your insights. Um, thank you. So you have later an office hour. Yes. Um, and if you have more questions, you can just join. And so now we would close the, the session. And now thank you, Tessa Alexenia, so for your talk, for your Q&A, for your insights. Towards the solar punk future. Let's go.